Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 61 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. It is a cold, brisk day as I record this episode. Fall in New England can be a number of things. Sometimes the days are hot and sunny and you feel like it's an Indian summer. And hours or days later, you feel like winter is just around the corner. Today is a bit of a combination. It's, it's got a nice, warm sort of mugginess to it, which I like. But it's gray and rainy and the leaves are really more down than up now. We're in that transition. My least favorite time of year. I joke around a lot that fall is a big tease by God or the universe or whatever it is you believe in, science, showing us all the beautiful colors and the amazing, beautiful weather when it's one of those gorgeous fall days where you don't need a jacket, but you're not sweaty. And it's just a tease because what's weeks away is dark at four o'clock, biting cold winter. But this is relevant to my topic today because fall and spring are transition seasons. You begin the season a certain way and you end it very differently. Summer and winter are much more, this is what we are. In the summer, you know, most of June, all of July, all of August, it's summer for months and months and months. Well, weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. Whereas here in fall and spring, you know, week to week, the weather is very, very different. From mid-March to mid-May, very different weather, same season. From mid-June to mid-August, the weather can be identical. I think the reason I like summer the best, and perhaps winter even, is it's predictable. You know what you get. You know, I have a hard time in the winter with the dark, but it's predictable. I, I wake up each day knowing what I'm getting. Transitions can be difficult. People with a wide variety of mental illness suffer with transition seasons. Fall and spring are high, high times for tricky behaviors in, in those with mental illness. And as I'm reading and reading and reading about the brain and neuroplasticity and neurology, mental illness, I hope, will stop being considered a sign of weakness or something needs to be hidden or isn't justifiably medicine because all the research is pointing to the fact that the brain and the illness of the brain isn't made up in the head or isn't dictated by a choice. The asthmatic doesn't choose the wheeze. Cancer patient doesn't choose to grow tumors. And we're very, very accepting of that. And we don't judge people with those illnesses. Mental illness, if you just behaved better, if you just controlled this, that, or the other thing. And really a disease of the brain should be no different than a disease of anything else. This episode, when I finished up with episode 60, I had just graduated from grad school. It really was the end of my collegiate career as a student and as a runner, as a competitive division one runner. I kept running. This episode will really just be my first year out of college. Now, keep in mind, since I was in kindergarten, I had gone to school every September, actually preschool. So from the fall of 1966 until the fall of 1985, I started school. So in the fall of 1986, 20 years after my heading off to preschool, I was not going back to school. I didn't have a teaching job yet, so I wasn't even going back to school in that regard. I was just starting a year that the months wouldn't start and end. My job wouldn't begin in September and end in May. And in all my years of teaching, 
that was one of my favorite parts of being an educator is that you got to have a restart. You know, every year was a new year. Yes, you were in the same building and working with most of the same other teachers and professionals in your building. But the class configurations changed. New students came in, older students moved on. You really did get to have a reset. And it's a wonderful, wonderful aspect of education and teaching is that you do get that reset. The summer and fall of 86 were very different for me. So I'll begin with the summer. So as I had mentioned before, I was laying with Marty in an apartment and we graduated from grad school. And Marty really took off and began her life. She moved to Marblehead and sort of got ties with me. And, and I remember at the time not really understanding why. I wasn't invited to her wedding. She just cut ties. And when I look back at my behavior, I probably was scaring the crap out of her, quite honestly. I was really, really in a tricky, tricky, rough place. I didn't have the guidance. You know, we didn't live in a society where you could talk about the craziness in your head. You know, I have to be careful with using the word crazy. Crazy to me just means disorganized and out of control. And that's how I felt. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have an apartment lined up for the summer. We had let go of ours because, it, you know, Marty was moving and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And our lease was sort of up. So off we went. We sublet the apartment to a couple of really nice girls and we moved on. So I moved home. I packed up all my belongings and I moved back home to Concord. And I didn't have a lot of belongings, quite honestly. I sold a lot of what I did have and I moved back home. And it was hard for me because I didn't really want to be back home. I was living out of my car. I was very, very unsure of what came next. In the move home back to Concord, I got a job in a bar called Callahan. So I hadn't applied in time to get like a parks and rec job or anything sort of like that. And I didn't, I think I didn't really want to be tied down, which was a key sign of where I was at. My job was just to make money. And what I thought was I would do this to be a runner. At that point, I was running for Liberty Athletic Club, which was an all women's running club in Boston. And if you were a female runner in the Boston area, at one time or another, you wore a Liberty Athletic Club singlet. I did participate in Liberty Athletic Club workouts, but I was sort of all over the place, doing a lot of running on my own. I mean, I've been running long enough now to sort of know what I needed to do. And I had coached in my graduate school year. I coached at Newton North High School with a wonderful coach named Peter, whose last name escapes me right now. He was amazing. Such a great coach. I learned so much from him. And he from me, quite honestly, we, we had a wonderful working relationship. And so I knew early on that I was a pretty natural coach. Another thing that had happened in my running career when I was still competing heavily is, and this continued, is Bob Seveny, who was the Olympic coach I talked about and also coached at BU. He was coaching in Maine at this time, but he would often sit with me at track meets and say, okay, look at this race. And he would have me identify things that he was at. And he was always amazed that I could pick up on a lot of what he was doing as a coach. He has a coaching resume that's unparalleled. So I go home, I'm living at home and I'm working at Callahan's. So Callahan's was this steakhouse in Concord and there were three of them. I worked Friday a double shift, Saturday a double shift, Sunday a brunch. And I had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off. I also think I worked Thursday nights. So I worked Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And so you would think, oh my God, that's terrible. You work all week, you work every weekend. Summer of 1986, if you were going to go back into weather records, it rained every weekend. It was hot and sunny Monday through Friday, and every single weekend it rained. So it was terrible for touristy things that rely on weekend weather. And people that work five days a week were having a terrible summer because there was no remote online work back then. You went to work, worked at your job, and you were inside all day. So I would get in my car Sunday afternoon after my rut shift, and I would drive to the Cape. That summer, a lot of David's family and friends, that whole social circle, had rented these two little cottages. And when I say little cottages, I'm sitting in like a 10 by 10 room right now, and that's probably how big the cottages were. And it was in a little thing called Pinewood Village, and it was in Harwich. I would drive down. 
every single weekend I drove to Massachusetts. I either went to the greater Boston area, just hang out with David and his family there, or I went to the Cape, but primarily it was the Cape. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, hot, sunny, beautiful weather. Thursday morning, get up, drive back to New Hampshire, work Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That was the eight weeks of my summer. And during that time, I learned to be a very good cocktail waitress. I'm just a natural. I think on my feet, I'm quick. I was thin and fit. It was the 80s, Banana Rama and all those great 80s songs played at the bar. And this bar was known for its giant alcoholic drinks. So every drink was a double and you paid for it. But you think of those glass beer mugs and that's what cocktails came in. So if you ordered a martini, it came in a glass like that. A martini straight up came in like a whiskey tumbler, but normally martinis are in a martini glass and they're small. These drinks were huge. And there was a rule that customers could only order two drinks. And after they'd ordered two drinks, they needed to order food. We had this whole protocol we went through in an effort to prevent drunk driving accidents because that was the mid 80s was just shortly after the nationwide drinking age of 21 went into play, mothers against drunk driving, students against drunk driving, all of these things were were very prevalent in in the political climate and day-to-day life. Ronald Reagan, his whole presidency had gone on just saying no to drugs. You know, it was just that time of culture in the 80s. That summer for me really centered around alcohol. What I remember most about working inside of Callahan's is that the bartenders would make drinks and frozen drinks were equally as big as others. And so you make a blender full of a strawberry daiquiri or a mudslide or a frozen margarita and you pour it and you have some extra left. And so the bartenders would pour the extras into coffee mugs and the coffee mugs would just line up at the waitress station at the end of the bar where you went to place your drink orders and get your drinks. So you'd go up and place a drink order, coffee mug, and there'd be like three sips of a daiquiri in there and you'd drink it down. So that's rum, right? And then you'd go back up a little later and there'd be three sips of a mudslide left. So you'd drink that. So that's vodka and Bailey's. I think you go back up and three, you know, there'd be three sips of a frozen margarita left, that's tequila. Now, I wasn't the only waitress working. There were several other cocktail waitresses working, and there were food servers upstairs that would come down to get their drinks that went with their customers. It was fairly regular that by the time the shift was over, I had a very, very good buzz on. I was never, ever super, super drunk, but you can't do that. I wanted to work and make good money. I made amazing money, amazing tips at Callahan's. Keeping that customers happy. It was easy for me. I can talk about anything, making sure they ate their food. When I was working, we always had high food sales and high drink sales and minimal issues, <laughs> fights and things like this. So that was the summer of 1986. I trained. I ran every day. I never missed running. And the number of times I ran hungover is too many to count. I also spent a lot of time palling around with David's brothers. Oftentimes, David wasn't able to come down, not just his brothers, his sister, Karen, and his brothers, Eric, Franny, Michael. <laughs> It was the whole Vaughn clan down there. And I spent a lot of time hanging out with family, even when he couldn't be there. And that was often touchy. And I look back now, and I think that's kind of shitty. <laughs> I really just should have really focused on David. But as I said, I wasn't ready for someone as kind and gentle as him. I was just in this crazy place. I moved back to Boston and I moved in with Alyssa. Alyssa's family had helped her buy a condo. So she owned an apartment in Jamaica Plain. It was amazing. I drive on the Jamaica Way, top floor of this really cool building. It was like a deck on top. And we moved in and it was pretty expensive rent for the time. It was like $425 a month, which back then would be like $1,200 a month now. And so I transferred from the Callahan's in Concord to the Callahan's in Wales. It was on Route 20 and I worked on Route 20 in Belmont for NETAC, New England Athletics Conference. It was called at that time, the Athletics Congress. Now it's USA Track and Field New England, but it was the governing body for track and field. And there was a brand new running magazine called Boston Running News, which is now called New England Running. So I worked there for $3 an hour. <laughs> and I was cash pay under the table. And I worked with Martha White, John Norway. Oh my gosh. So John was more connected to the magazine. And Martha and I sort of 
USA track and field stuff and and just just all the nitty gritty in the work that John needed. John, so he lived in like a split level and he his office was one of the upstairs rooms and the main office was like the quote unquote basement of the house, but it's finished because it was like a split level with windows and everything. We'd often bring our laundry. I have some great pictures of John Larway, Martha and I with underpants on our head. It was 86, 87, that time of year. Billy Buckner, Red Sox fame <laughs> was going on at that time. I had completely lost contact with almost every one of my collegiate friends. Martha went, ran for the University of Virginia, and we had really a wonderful friendship. It was socially life-saving for me at the time. She had a life as interesting and as stressful as mine and traumatic. She remains somebody that I really I get teary-eyed now. Sorry, Martha, you make me cry. I just remember how willing she was to just put it out there and work hard. And she was one of those people that people loved or hated. You know, she had a strong personality. She's this teeny tiny, Amy Zuma, she reminds me of you. She's this little thing with a little pixie cut and freckles everywhere. And we had a blast. I remember we, we dressed up for Halloween once, went to a Halloween party and she was Tina Turner. And I was everybody around the whole Thorn Queen's got a gun from that, from that song. Really, really good times. I had some very positive experiences during this time, but I was truly out of control with my drinking and the behavior that accompanies out of control drinking. Dave and I were on again, off again. I don't even remember right now what he was doing for work. Isn't that terrible? I don't remember. He hadn't started working for Nike yet. I'm not sure. And I just feel crappy not remembering. How do I not remember the person I claim to be in love with was doing, but I don't. What I remember of those times is the drinking and the partying and knowing that I was out of college, but a lot of people I hung out with were older than I was and they weren't settled down into normal life either. But I do know that things with David became very, very tense and were very on again, off again. Another thing that happened during this year was Seb moved back to the Boston area, or it was like later in the year. His tenure at Bowdoin stopped and he ended up moving back to Boston and getting rehired by Nike to start a farm program in New England called Nike Boston. So there was Nike South, Nike North, Nike Boston. And I think there was like one on the West Coast. And this was like a feeding program for Athletics West. Athletics West was Nike's top of the line, national, international caliber level runners. And that had always been a goal of mine. And I remember in those years, John Babington said he had never met an athlete as disciplined as I was, meaning I was perfectly willing to wake up, come over on the Cape, drive to, you know, Falmouth High School to the track or Barnstable High School, wherever there was a track, and do the workout in the hot sun and throw up maybe. And I'd call him on a payphone to give him my times. And he would say, you actually did that workout? Of course I did the workout. You told me to do the workout, so I did the workout. What I didn't do was eat well, drink enough water, avoid alcohol. I didn't do all of the other things that would have, A, made me not be so susceptible to asthma attacks because asthma treatment back then was still nothing like it is now. And B, just run well. You can't drink the amount of alcohol I drank and run well. The other piece here is I had in and out connections to Coke, and I'm just going to keep those connections. I'm not going to call out people. <laughs> Other people's Coke stories aren't mine. And it was not a regular thing. In all of my years of ever being involved with cocaine use, I never had a dealer. I never bought it myself. If I paid for it, I gave money to somebody else, and it was for them to... I know it doesn't diminish the fact that I used a totally illegal drug for a long time, but, but I was never in the whole dealing of it. I never bought pot. If I used any of those things, it was because other people were doing it and I joined in. And so it started to inch into more prevalence in my life. And of course, when you're doing that sort of thing, you start to make really poor decisions. Even the people I was getting drunk with and getting high with started to be concerned about my behavior. And I just didn't see it. I didn't see it at all. But I do know that I, I just made terrible choices. I remember my birthday that summer. I 
got hammered, shit-faced with Franny at a bar in Boston. So I was turning 23 and we just drank and drank and drank. And we laid down on a door next to the Mass Pike that somebody had left in the woods to rest because we needed to walk all the way back to Newton because we didn't have money and we didn't have have there. And I had to get up early in the morning. I was too drunk to drive. I don't remember the details. It's how bad it was. But the next day was the Irish Pub Road Rates. And I drove down to the Cape, hung over his hell, so sick, so utterly sick. I was so fit and could have run so well. And I wanted to win that race so much. Kathy was there, Kathy Boyle. I didn't win the race. I got second and threw up five times while I was running. It was awful. It's my own fault. I just sabotaged myself again and again and again. As summer turned into fall and I began working these other jobs, the drinking behavior at the bar continued. What made this even worse is the owner was down there, and Mr. Callahan. And he was an amazing guy, but also an active, active alcoholic. And he would sit with us and we would just drink. The shift would end and we'd drink. That was my life. Not surprisingly, I didn't manage money well. And as I was going along and my social group changed, I met a woman that I ended up living with named Jane. And what happened was I started not being able to afford 425 a month and really scraping and scrapping and all this. And so I said to Alyssa, I have to move out. I have to live someplace less expensive. Well, that wasn't fair to her. She couldn't afford that rent by herself. She was working hard. You know, she was in grad school and just working really hard. And I wasn't. I was working, but I was partying. I was just all over the place, just all over the place all the time. I was out of control. And so I moved in with Jane and Jane lived in Meetup. And I lived with Jane for a year and a half. And eventually Jane and her boyfriend, whose name I don't remember, they moved out. And David's brother, Michael, moved in. And we started sort of just trying to, it was a great apartment. And so I continued with all my 9,000 jobs, you know, running for Nike Boston, really, really trying, trying so hard on one level to pay my bills and make it work. I just wasn't in the headspace to be okay. And, you know, I didn't always choose the best people to hang out with. I loved to go out and I loved to party. And I chose those people to hang out with. So now I've graduated college. I'm just not even a year out of college and I no longer am friends with Alyssa or have any contact with her. And I am no longer friends with Marty. I have any contact with her. This isn't prevalent in my head at the time because I was just too busy and too sort of, too struggling in such a bad place. And I, again, it goes back to people with, with mental illness or neurodivergence, how hard transitions are because predictability is so key. Around this time, I needed a chiropractor. I had hurt my hamstring. I had hurt myself really badly in a race. The town that David lived in, he lived in Newton. When he went to the little downtown area near his house, there was a chiropractor office and I just looked at it and I happened in there. So I went in and I made an appointment because I was in, I was in so much pain. And running all of these silly, not silly jobs, but jobs that weren't career choices for me. I went to school to be an educator, a teacher. I knew I would do that one day. But all these jobs were paying my bills so that I could run. So I could say to my restaurant job, I'm going to be gone all next week. Take me off the schedule. I'm going here or there and other people fill in. When I couldn't run, I realized, okay, this is bad. You know, I, I need to get fixed. And so I had gone through the windshield of a car. I was out with Karen, David's sister. And I think David was in the back seat, and I was in the front. And there was an accident. We were driving somewhere late at night. We looked over at an accident, not seeing a car that had stopped in front of us. And we hit it. And my head crowned a windshield. My head back to windshield open. Went to the hospital, you know, I seemed fine. I maybe I had a concussion, I don't know. I had some headaches after that for a few days. My neck was a bit sore, but that was months prior. So I went to this chiropractor and his name was Mark, Mark Tanny, and had all the, some x-rays and this and that. And sure enough, I had a reverse curvature in my spine. I went for like lower back and hamstrings. So I'm like, no, I don't need my neck adjusted. I need my back adjusted. Six adjustments to my neck later and my hamstring was fine. And it really, really taught me at that time how connected the body is and what a metaphor that is for life. That even though the neck, 
and the hip aren't actually connected directly to one another. They are joined together by the spine. And so all sorts of things have to be healthy, both below and above an injured area for things to be okay. But the key piece of Mark is that he belonged to the Baha'i faith, as did I. And so I went there, started receiving treatment, and a, and a woman worked there named Brenda. Now, I talked about Brenda a few episodes ago in that I met her at a job at BU. And she was maybe one of the connections for me going to that chiropractic place. But there we were reconnected again. She worked there. She was like, a, you know, behind the front desk and all this. So she facilitated all my appointments and all that. So we reconnected and reestablished our friendship. So I started working there as well. We started to split the hours. And then the Tanny family, they lost their nanny. And so for a little while, I was working as a nanny. I let go of the, the restaurant closed. So I stopped having that income. I was working for USA Track and Field and you know, New England runner, but that pay wasn't enough to live on. And so I started working for the Tannies. And I was working also in Faneuil Hall at Bill Rogers Running Center. I had 9,000 jobs. I was never not working. Every day of the week, seven days a week, I had someplace I was supposed to be. And it just barely paid my bills. So I was doing okay financially, sort of muddling along. And I began working there. And working for the Tannies got me a few weeks one summer in Barbados, which was wonderful. I got to run there. I have some pictures there. 1986 and 1987 was a big travel year for me. This spring of 87, and I'm running, and I'm running pretty well. And so Nike Boston is just taking off now. We're getting all this nice new gear and feeling really good about things. And so Martha was a huge piece of this. So we trained a lot together, you know, ran road races together. It was a really, really nice connection. Another person that I had lost some contact with primarily because she lived far away was my good friend, Sally. We were still in, in a lot of communication and summers we often spent together because like me, Summers often found her in Concord, New Hampshire. She became a cyclist, a really good cyclist, and was in two Olympic games. And this was the time of life where she was a very competitive cyclist. And so her life became very swallowed up with that. So we would talk to one another. I remember driving in Wellesley and hearing on the radio that she made the Olympic team. I had to pull over and cry. I was so happy for her. So all of this was my life. I was working jobs that weren't career jobs, jobs to pay the bills, working in a running store, cocktail waitressing, I'm nannying. I was really pretty out of control behavior, alcohol, drug wise. At this time, I realized that the only thing that would probably put me together and save me was if I were to apply for an actual teaching job. So I did. I pulled my resume together. I got recommendations and I applied to several jobs. I applied to one at Boston Children's Hospital, which in hindsight would have been good for me to take. And then I applied in Massachusetts. So I applied for a job there and I got the job. And I remember the man that hired me, Rob McArdle, telling me that he was impressed with my EU education. In the fall of 87, at age 24, I was not ready for the responsibility that came with a full-time job and being around students. Not that I was a danger to students, but I just hadn't, I hate the word, but I hadn't really caught on to what it meant to be adulting. I still just thought I was this young, carefree college student that could sort of do what she wanted at the time. So that was my professional career. Also that summer, the summer of 1987, I went with Martha and Sev, Bob Seventy, to Switzerland. And we worked a running camp in Davos. What a beautiful place. So now it's 1987. I have been to St. Lucia. I have been to Barbados. And now I am going to Switzerland. It was a 10-day trip. It was amazing. We worked with runners. Sev was the guest coach. I don't quite remember why Martha and I got to go, but we did. It was just an amazing trip. At that trip, that Sev and I got together in a relationship. Here's another example of a young female runner having a romantic relationship with a coach. I would say 90% of my relationship with Seb was just fine. Was it unhealthy? Absolutely. You know, 
talk about a division of power. You know, he's the coach of Nike Boston. So he's very, very much responsible for my running career. And I'm responsible to run well. He's also coaching David, who he and I were on a break now. How clear I was about that break, I don't know. But then we all bring into, into these relationships all of our unhealthiness. So was I seeking out validation and all of the things that someone like me, based on trauma and trying to figure out what sexuality meant and is my body really my enemy and how to be healthy, how for all this to be okay. We began a relationship. We came home as a couple. In the fall of 87, I had, once again, a complete shift in my life. I was living it with Jane still, but I believe Jane had moved away. If his brother had moved in. So now he lives there. I live there. I'm teaching in Woburn. So I have a full-time job and I'm balancing running. I'm not coaching yet, but I'm balancing running. So I'm running for Nike Boston. What I remember about that fall is that two nights a week, we met at, at Brandeis and we had these amazing workouts. Hill repeats on Heartbreak Hill and drills and strides, weightlifting. That's when I learned to deadlift and to do power cleans, back squats. It was amazing to be working with free weights and I loved it. And I was a natural at it. I built muscularity right away. I became very, very fit. In actuality, my drinking was much more under control because I had this full-time job. I was working as a special educator in a middle school and way over my head. In hindsight, I should have accepted a resource room position where I was just sort of helping kids with their work rather than having to generate curriculum. And I did a terrible job. The students loved me. I was inspiring to them. They did do well in their other classes because I often helped them with work when they came to me. But was I a solid teacher? No, we spent a lot of time in my classroom just processing life. Now, <laughs> in post-COVID reality, that would be exactly what these kids needed. And a lot of these kids did need it. I had a kid who was 15 in eighth grade with a mustache and bragging about the drugs he sold with his brother. And I had a boy who had a whole host of emotional issues who left me a love note the last day of school about how he loved my body. Yeah, weird. But I mean, this is middle school, right? I was 24. Two of the things I did in that job I think were wonderful is I started Mini Skirt Friday. So it's the 80s. So in Woburn, big hair, high heel shoes with all athletic socks, mini skirts, and your favorite band on your t-shirt was all the rage. And we had a principal that was a bit old school and deemed these inappropriate. And so I went to the principal and said, could I institute Mini Skirt Friday? And, and that meant if students got all of their work in and had no behavioral infractions, they would provide proof of this to the principal on Thursday afternoon, they could wear a mini skirt to school. And the guys got to wear rock and roll t-shirts because back then a lot of bands, some of their t-shirts, it was co-ed naked stuff. There were all these things on shirts that aren't even allowed in schools now, but it was new. And so kids wanted to wear this stuff. And so the principal agreed. And so behavior in that school improved incredibly. Although I really was not ready in many ways for that job, there were things that I did because of my youth and my enthusiasm that were helpful for those students. And, I, and I've never forgotten that. Another thing that I did was I got a coaching job at Simmons. So when I say I wasn't coaching, I was coaching. Actually, this is a pretty significant piece of my story. I applied in the summer before I'd been hired at Woburn. I applied for an assistant coaching job at Simmons College in Boston. And not knowing at the time, Marty and I both applied for that job, Marty Che and me. I found out afterwards. Ellie and the athletic director, Sheila, interviewed me. We went through all of how would I be as a coach and how would I be a support and all of this. And then they asked me, what's something special that you would bring? Well, when I was in high school, my coaches created the Cross Country Tribune, and I loved it. We were on a whole team, but the Tribune went through each girl in the race and what coach saw in that race and, and just something, some feedback or a compliment. And so I did that when I coached at Newton, and the Newton coach loved it. So I brought examples of the Tribunes, the ones that had been written for me when I was in high school and the ones I had written for the athletes in, in Newton. That's what got me the job. So afterwards, a while afterwards, Gila and Ellie shared with me that another applicant was Marty. 
that our interviews were identical. They were identical. The main difference was I had this Tribune and that wasn't something that Marty had. Not that that makes me a better coach, just makes me a different coach. So it was the first week of school and I was living the life, right? So I had gone out, I believe it was a Thursday night. And I know that there was early, early practice at Simmons Friday morning and I didn't have to go, but I had said I would go. So I didn't want to not show up and do a bad job. So I'd been out late, late, far too late to be out on a Thursday night. Late enough that when I got home, it made no sense to sleep. I drank coffee, I took a shower, brushed my teeth, you know, put on work clothes. And I was driving to work down Route 9 in my Subaru hatchback. And I was just tired. I was exhausted. I was jittery from coffee, no sleep. I probably hadn't processed all the alcohol out of my system. And I lost control of my car. I was going around a turn almost into, into the Jamaica Plain area. And I hit a curb. My car just spun out of control. It spun around backwards. So now I was facing the oncoming traffic. It hit a big stone wall and landed on its side. I was not wearing a seatbelt. I landed on my feet in the driver's side window. I don't know how I ended up that way. And so I stood, I peeked out through the sunroof, which had shattered. and said, I'm fine, I'm fine, ta-da, trying to be funny. And there was a nurse there, and I'm a woman's call, and I got taken to Beth Israel Hospital. So I had to call in sick. It was like the fourth day of school. I'm in a car accident calling in sick. And so I went home. I went home for the weekend, and I was really, really sore. I had incredible neck soreness, all over body soreness, and I missed the following Monday of school as well. So four days. Now I had no car. So what that did is I ended up moving in, living with Seb, Bob 70, in his apartment in Waltham so that he could drive me to school or I could drive his car to school and drive it home. That plunged us into a far too quick, far too seriously and intimate relationship. I hadn't really processed things through with David. When Seb was away, Seb traveled a lot. So I went to a party that all the BU kids were at and I'm sitting at a table playing cards with a group of people and somehow Seb found out I was there. I didn't even know he was back. And he's outside of the window. Barbara in there. And then we had this huge fight because I had gone to this party. This is where it became unhealthy, where it was a whole faction of control. I look at the behaviors of some of the men that I chose to be with that weren't David. Let me be clear now. David doesn't fit into any of this. And I just think of all I've learned in reading around trauma about self-sabotage and being drawn to helping and being with people that will ultimately turn around and use everything you've done against you. It's a very, very eye-opening and alarming realization. And when I look back at that fall, 1987, I see so many, so many red flags as to what my future could hold for me if I didn't get help. No one knew what trauma was at that time. PTSD was brand new, and it was still considered something that only soldiers got. They didn't apply PTSD to anything else at that time. It was really a very difficult time for people that were suffering from the effects of trauma and abuse. The positives of that relationship was it was very stabilizing. I got a new car. It was this little red Subaru. Sav led an old man's life. I was 24. He was 44. His children were not that much younger than I was in high school and college. I believe he was divorced. But you know, he went to this Italian restaurant every Friday night for dinner or every night for dinner. Sometimes he wasn't a big cooker. I had stability and predictability, which was very, very good at sort of managing me. I've always done well in jobs where I have to punch in and punch out. If the infrastructure is set for me and I just have to step into my role, I shine. I know I have the potential to be my own boss in creating this podcast and all that's going with it. I've struggled with that. That was the positive side. The negative side was I wasn't ready to let go of David. I was in over my head with Sev and we were all together. Nike Boston was one community. Marty ran for Nike Boston. We quasi reconnected at this time. We traveled to a road race in Iowa. We traveled to New York City for cross country meets. We traveled to North Carolina. 
Getting for Nike Boston was an amazing, amazing gift. I spent the summer going across Canada. We started in Nova Scotia and, and ended up in Toronto. It was wonderful, utterly lucky. Think about me, and I think about this when I think about sobriety, is that I was able to balance really, really alcoholic level drinking with unbelievable success. I was one of those students in high school that never did homework and never studied. And I still got A's and B's because I'm smart and I remember things. I took it in, I could pass the tests. I did really well on my SATs. I never studied for an SAT, I just took it. Well, that's a blessing in some ways. Alcoholism didn't reduce me to homelessness or crime or abuse, but I was able to succeed with it, which gave me the ability to deny that I had a problem. When I would speak at AA meetings, when I finally found AA, that was something I said. That's a blessing and a curse. I'm lucky I've been able to have great success as an active alcoholic. However, that success has allowed me to deny the fact that I probably shouldn't drink. And in this calendar year from June of 1986, you know, when I had graduated and was done with BU until, you know, December of 1987, when I had my last big trip, and this is where I'll end this particular episode. I was now working in Woburn. I had to ask for a bunch of time off to go to Hawaii. I had mentioned when I got hired, I used all sick time and everything else. I think I took some time without pay, actually. The USA Track and Field Convention was in Honolulu, Hawaii. It was a Hilton Hawaiian Village. A free trip to Hawaii. Who could turn that down? So I went and I rode with Martha. And of course, Seb was there, John Babington. So we were there. And, you know, I'm not going to speak negatively of Seb because he was a huge piece of really what saved me sometimes, his willingness to be honest with me. But Seb had his whole life. He is a Vietnam vet. Hey, Seb, if you're listening, I love you. And I will only share that the things he suffered and experienced in Vietnam never left him. And he lived in a society that didn't care for Vietnam vets. It's not like now where vets, even now vets, I don't think are appreciated the way they should be. But he had none of that support, none. He did his best to not let his demons haunt him, but they did. I can remember sometimes listening to his nightmares and not understanding at all what I was listening to. And, you know, what a horrible way to live. And he did the best he could. He spent his life dedicating his smarts around running and life in general, quite honestly, to the athletes that he coached. He's an amazing human being that way. And so he was there. And I don't remember the details. I do remember that on that trip, Martha and I went to Iwa Beach. We went to Hanama Bay. We spent hours and hours outside. Hawaii is a beautiful place. And the energy in Hawaii is, positive energy is palpable. And so it was a wonderful trip. So the very last day, we're waiting to go to the airport and flights out of Hawaii fly out at night. You fly home all night. And we had good flights. We flew from Hawaii. We flew quite inland. We didn't, we didn't land in California. I think we flew to Phoenix and then Phoenix to Boston. It was like two really long trips. You could sleep and all this. It's summer weather. It's Hawaii. We're in shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops and, and an argument ensues. I don't remember the details of the argument. What I do remember is that Seth got really angry and he's like, that's it, I'm out of here. And I looked out the window and now we were traveling together. We were on the same flights and everything. All of his luggage was in the hotel room. He got into a taxi. So he never came back. He had like his wallet and his plane tickets and all that. But he actually had my plane ticket, which I was all freaked out. How am I going to fly home? So I lugged all of his suitcases and everything. We go to the airport, we check everything in. My ticket is waiting for me at the desk. So he had gotten on an earlier flight and just left. He left. So I flew all the way back from Hawaii to Boston by myself. I was on a different flight than Martha, I believe. It was awful. I was like, what the hell? Couldn't wrap my head around what was going on. So I get all the way back to Boston. It's Sunday night now. Of course, I have to teach the next day, but it's fine because I've had all this sleep. So I'm at the airport and there's seven. It's flip-flops and shorts in December waiting for me. It's just this awful, awful, awful time. The trip was stressful. Flying home alone was stressful. And it was one of those moments where I just, I didn't know how to wrap my head around things. We locked all our stuff back to Seb's apartment and because that's where I was living at the time. 
I still had my apartment in need of, let me be clear. I didn't, hadn't given that up. I still paid rent and all of that. I still had that, that sort of other place to go. And I, I actually believe after this particular weekend, I spent much more time back in that apartment as opposed to all the time with Seth. It was too overwhelming for me. I couldn't wrap my head around how I was being treated and what was going on. That particular time frame, sort of the middle of that school year, when I was teaching at that middle school, was a time for me where I had, you know, tremendous examples of when things were okay and when things weren't. I remember doing a fundraiser at the school. I had a student who was a runner. He was in my class and his best mile was like, you know, slower than mine. And so I'm like, well, my best mile is this. And so he's like, I want to race you. Well, I agreed to race him. I just thought it would be he and I and our classes. Well, the principal got wind of it and created a fundraiser out of it. And the whole entire school was there. The newspaper came. People made donations, which we donated to a food pantry. And I ran the race. So it was the six fastest middle school and high school girls in Woburn and the six fastest boys. So I got second. <laughs> that one boy beat me. He ran 5'11 and I ran like 5'15 and everyone else was behind us. So it was a big thing. I remember, you know, pictures in the newspaper. But I also remember that I was hungover enough that I felt nauseous and wanted to throw up most of that race. Really, Barbara, think about it. So I'll stop here. I'm sort of midway through my first, you know, professional job. The year 1987 was a big travel year for me. Two Caribbean countries, Europe and Hawaii. So all four places I went were not in the continental United States. And a huge amount of drinking and an increased amount of drug use. Relationship-wise, holding on to what was good and safe in David and punishing myself, I think, sometimes with looking for something that I thought I was supposed to have. Not that Sev was punishing, but it was just an incredibly confusing time for me. And I so could have used help. At this time, I did get a wonderful therapist. He was the first one that really helped me process what was going on inside of my head. He was a psychiatrist. So I'll wrap up here. And I mean it. I'm not going to talk for 10 more minutes. My transition from college through jobs that could allow me to feel like I was still in college, (laughs) have free time that I thought I needed, to beginning my first job as a public school teacher incredibly tumultuous, best of times, worst of times. So I have to say, you know, in the middle of that year, while so many things in hindsight were out of control, lots of things were good. And I had a lot of good people in my life. What's my main message here? If you know somebody that's a grief or a trauma sufferer, if you were a grief or a trauma sufferer, transition times are difficult. That can be seasons, fall and spring. That can be job changes, moving into a new apartment. Any of the things that that are stressful to healthiest people and be life-altering and, and very damaging to those of us who struggle with illnesses of the brain, which is what I now call mental illnesses. We think of mental as behavior. No, no, no. Mental just means the brain. And the brain is a physical organ, just like a kidney or a liver or a heart. So anyway, it's late October here. I hope you have a good Halloween, or I hope you had a good Halloween. As usual, do something good for yourself, especially this time of year. Increase your vitamin D. Start taking vitamin D. Or make yourself go outside at lunch and sit in the sun and let it touch your face. Do something good for somebody, but not before you've done something good for yourself. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.